Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, you can open those up to John chapter 3. Um, and we're going to be looking at John chapter 3, verses 16 to 21. Um, so we'll read that together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment the light has come into the world, and the people people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just we thank you for, for the time that we've had together already this morning. What a what a joy it is to be together and to to sing together, um, to to pray together, to hear your word together. Uh, and we do pray as we listen to this very familiar passage this morning and we think about it and we dwell on it that it um, it wouldn't sound familiar to our hearts. It would sound new. It would sound fresh. It would move in our hearts in a, in a new way this morning. Um, so, Lord, we just pray that, that you would, um, you'd move among us this morning. We pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, amen. I, uh, I came across a story a, a couple years ago that I, I've never really been able to shake um, this man, Fritz Haber, was a, a German scienti- scientist in the early 20th century. Uh, and he solved one of, the, one of the world's greatest problems at, at the time. Um, there was this looming food shortage uh, in Europe and, and around the world. And in Germany alone, they were looking at a shortfall of food for about 20 million people. And the world's population at the time was just over 1 billion people, so not very many, relatively. Uh, and people were wondering if we'd hit, as a globe, if we'd hit kind of the max of what we could support. Um, and the reason was quite simple. There were too many people to feed, and the soil quality uh, around the globe was, was falling apart. So a little science lesson here. Uh, when plants grow, they take nitrogen out of the soil, uh, and that needs to be replaced. It's why farmers will leave their, their fields fallow and use fertilizer. And, and so Fritz this scientist comes in and he found a way to take nitrogen gas, which is all around us, and turn it into a solid. Uh, he developed what's called the Haber-Bosch method, where you take nitrogen from the air, turn it into a solid, and you can use it to fertilize your fields. Uh, it's kind of, we don't really think about it a lot, but at the time it was miraculous. Uh, they called it bread from the, from the air. He was a hero. Uh, he directly, through what he did, saved millions of lives. Um, I read that 
um, this, this week that it, the statistic that stood out to me was half of our body's nitrogen for the average person in the West, half of our body's nitrogen is a direct result of this process. Uh, what, what he did changed the world. He won a Nobel Prize for it. Um, but here's a second fact about Fritz. Uh, he used this newfound position of power to advocate during the First World War for the use of chlorine gas. Uh, he saw that the war was going badly for Germany. He came up with this idea that would speed things up. Um, he, was, he was the man behind our very first modern use of chemical warfare. Uh, and he invented uh, the gas that was eventually used in the Holocaust. The reason he stands out to me is because he's such a challenging figure. Like, what do we do with him? How do we judge the actions of a, of a human life? Is it on some sort of scales? Because he's got a lot of really good things on one side and a lot of really bad things on the other side. You know, he, he allowed life to flourish in some ways and then caused all sorts of destruction uh, in others. And does he get kind of a pass? Here's the thing. I think most of us probably don't think about life and justice in terms of scales like that, at least not when it comes to ourselves. Uh, I think the average person on the street sees morality on kind of a bell curve, right? Sure, there are some people that might be better than me, but, you know, there's people that aren't as, as well, doing as well as me too. So I kind of have this sort of comparison, relatively speaking, in relation to my peers. I'm doing, doing okay. And so if you press the average person, I think... It might sound, they might say something like, sure, you know, I have my faults, but who doesn't? And, and God, if, if there is a God, uh, he can see that I'm basically a good person. I've done my best to live a good life. I don't steal from my neighbors or things like that. And on a whole, that's, that's good enough. But the problem with that is that assumption, which I think is so common, is based on a fundamental misunderstanding of two essential characteristics of God. His, his love and his holiness. We Simultaneously, we underestimate the depth of his love and the height of his holiness. Because you see, love cannot look at what it loves, see it in distress and fail to act. And holiness can't look at sin and just kind of go, oh, it's, it's okay. And, and so from our perspective, in a, in a broken world, we often find that love and justice kind of live in, in tension. And we tend to want all of one and none of the other when it comes to ourselves, when it suits us. But what we have in our passage this morning is actually quite surprising because you have probably the most famous verse in the Bible on the love of God in John 16. And it's bookended by words like condemnation. We're told in verse 18, for example, that a person that does not believe in Jesus Christ stands condemned already. I think we, I'm talking about us as kind of a culture, we struggle with the idea of a wrathful God, a God who would condemn. And and that's what we need to look at today because the Bible right here is, is putting God's condemnation, his wrath, right next door to his love in such, such close proximity to, to his love. The Bible never sees God's wrath as being opposed to his love. Never sees his condemnation or his fury and his love as being opposed to each other, but we do, and so what are we going to do about that? In fact, the Bible continually sees these things as being together. 
right? It's not like we kind of can put them in separate rooms. The Bible tells us that in God's nature, love and wrath are not intention, but instead they actually establish each other. Each is meaningless without the other. And so this is hard, hard for us to, to really get inside of because it, it's, it's hard to comprehend, right? So here's what I want for us to come away with this morning as we dig, in, dig into this text. God is not just love and God is not just wrath. He's both. And his love uh, is what's been called furious love. His wrath is, is loving wrath. And we're going to try and dig inside of that. Because here's the thing, if we don't experience this, not just in our minds, but in our hearts, if our concept of, of God is distorted, our lives will, will follow. If, if your concept of God is just love, if God never constricts you or, or confines you, or if, if God is only ever distant and far off, like a judge that's just ready to hand out sentences, if that's all he ever is to you, if, he, if he's only ever saying no to you, if your concept of God is distorted, your life will be distorted. How you make decisions, how, how, you, how you think about your neighbor, right? how you relate to the world, how you, how you think about yourself. So first, what is the nature of God's love? We see three things. We see that the love of God is, is unreserved, freely giving, and, and totally inviting. The love of God is unreserved, freely giving, and, and totally in, inviting. So first, the love of God is is unreserved. This is the, the very heart of the Gospel of John. And see, see where it starts. It starts with God, not with us. Not with our situation, not with our movement. It, it starts with God, with his movement. We saw this last week, didn't we? You've ha- got to remember, we're jumping into the middle of a conversation. right? It's, it's this midnight conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. And what Jesus has just told Nicodemus is that in, in spite of all of his rule-keeping... He needs to be born again. That the only way that he can be born again is through a movement of the Spirit of God himself, which he, he illustrates as, as wind blowing, totally outside of human control. And we, we left off at verse 15, which, which said, uh, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man, that's Jesus talking about himself, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And, and it flows right into this next sentence, which you've heard before. For God so loved the world, or because God so loved the world. Now consider this. To this point, to this night, when Jesus is having this conversation and speaks this sentence for the first time, if you're tracking with the storyline of the Bible, you would have not really batted an eyelash if it sounded something like, for God so loved the people of Israel that he gave his only son. Right? For God so loved the world, this world. God loves this world. All of it in its brokenness, in its beauty. He loves it. And the world-wideness of God's love is unreserved. Paul exclaims in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. I was 
homesick this week for, for a couple days. We had a, a stomach bug that kind of just like destroyed all five of us all at once. Um, and it was pretty dire. I, I woke up on the living room floor and uh, our one-year-old had found a box of crackers. I don't know how long I'd been out for it. And our whole house was just like covered in crackers everywhere, one end to the other. And I didn't care. That's kind of how it, how it was going. Um, so anyway, when you're sick, if you're like me, it kind of affects your disposition, right? You get a little bit down. So I'm, I'm at home. I start scrolling, uh, and I happen upon this website. Uh, it's called Our World in Data. It's a project out of Oxford. Um, listen to some global statistics um, on our world. Current estimates show that 957 million people across 93 countries do not have enough to eat. Approximately 600 million children will not master basic numeracy and literacy by the time they enter adulthood. Uh, One in three women will experience physical or sexual abuse in her lifetime. 390,000 people are murdered every year. Eight million tons of plastic and other waste enter the ocean every year goes on and on and on. You could scroll through these. Child labor, 17% of elementary school-aged children are forced to work globally. Um, Netflix users watch an average of 3.2 hours of video per day. That's 6 billion hours per month. The world's nuclear powers have approximately 10,000 nuclear warheads. In the past decade, an average of 22,000 people were killed every year in terrorist attacks and 55,000 in armed conflicts. And that's, that's what's going on kind of over decades. Listen to some headlines from the last week. Will the vaccine stop Omicron, Omicron? Scientists are racing to find out. Uh, another one. As China speeds up nuclear arms race, the U.S. wants to talk. Tom Brady appears to have his team set for a Super Bowl run. <laughs> Millennials confront high inflation for the first time. Biden and Putin to hold call amid Ukraine invasion fears. Growing old and high style, a new crop of luxury senior housing is turning retirement into a five-star resort stay. George Clooney, turning 60 is a bummer, but that's it. Or, sorry, that's, it's that or dead. There's nothing to stop it. Flood waters rising in Abbotsford as Nooksack River overflows. Week after week after week, God so loved this world. That's the point. God so loved this world with these kind of people, with this kind of dysfunction, with this level of brokenness. God loved this world with this level of pain. We've read so far in John that he comes, he comes to make things new, right? New wine, a new temple. What's his plan for the world? The poet Wendell Berry put it like this, it gets darker and darker, and then Jesus is born. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. John later writes in his first letter, he himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but for the sins of all the world, literally the sins of the whole cosmos. It was the world that God loved, not a nation, not just good people, not just people that loved him already, It was the world. And that love was in the face of of rejection, right? We saw earlier in chapter 1, verse 9, the one 
the one who is the true light, Jesus, was coming into the world, and he came into, into the very world he created, but the world did not re- uh, recognize him. He came to his own people, and they rejected him. So he comes to a world that doesn't recognize him, a world that rejects him, and still, these are Jesus' words, for God so loved the world. His love is unreserved. A love not only for the nation of Israel, not only for those that seek him out, not only for the elect, but for the world. Second thing we see is that his love is freely giving. How much did God love the world? How do we measure it? He so loved the world that he gave his only son, it tells us. The measure of his love is the identity of the gift that he gave us. There's there's an economic accounting of grace, right? Like if we could assign a price to Jesus, a numerical value to Christ, it would far outrun any national debt. If we could do that. Now, what do we have in the gospel? We've got God the Father saying this, I'm going to take my son, my, my beloved son, whose value knows no end, and I'm going to give that son as a ransom for those who have thrown away and thrown aside their value. He gives his son, not a lamb, not a bull or a goat, his son, it cost him everything. What a reality for us to consider this Christmas. God gives us himself. Jesus is is human. Dorothy Sayers said this, God can expect nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He himself has gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty and suffered infinite pain, all for us, and thought it well worth his while. He sent his only son. I feel like, like that we've heard that, but maybe we need to hear it again. His love is, is freely giving of himself. His love is unreserved, freely giving, and totally inviting. Here's what I mean. His love, expressed as a gift, is presented as an open invitation. Right? We, we read in verse 16, so that... This gift was given so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever. This invitation is presented to the world and the only requirement to receiving that gift, to opening it, is belief. So here's an important question. What what is belief? What does Jesus mean when he says this? The Greek could literally be translated, whoever is entrusting oneself to him. Right? We're, we're not talking about belief that, right? belief that Jesus existed. Whoever is entrusting oneself to him. D.A. Carson uh, points out this. He says, not one single adverb or adjective is placed before the word entrusting, such as deeply or sincerely or completely. Every such adverb or describing word turns faith into a good work the believer does. But the good work of salvation, in fact, is done by the loving and giving Father, the gifted Son, and the transforming Spirit alone. We entrust ourselves to this triune worker. We do nothing but trust another who has done everything. 
It's a belief without characteristic, big or small. It's belief. It's a trusting into him. It's a resting in him. It's, it's, it's like stepping off a dock into a boat. You either do it or you don't. It doesn't matter how easily you do it or how familiar it is. You're either in the boat or you're not. It doesn't matter how great or small your trust in the boat is when you take that step. But you see, that image kind of fails because he is both the source and motivation of our trust and the final object and resting place of our beings. It's, it's not a belief that something happens. It's a belief into a person. So it's not a matter of intellectual assent, but, but of spiritual awaking, uh, uh, enlightenment. And it's all of grace. And this is what Nicodemus, the man who Jesus is talking to, wasn't getting yet. Right? We heard last week, the only way in which we can enter the kingdom of God is if God himself enters our life. It's our responsibility, yes, to receive the love of God as it's offered to us, but John is making clear in these first chapters that we can't receive him through unaided efforts. We can only receive and believe if God first moves in our hearts, and that's such good news. Now, a few minutes ago, I, I described God's love as being furious, which might have sounded a little strange. Let me explain. Here's what, here's what we need to see here, right? We, we said that this f- most famous verse on love is bookended by words like condemnation and, and, and the righteous judgment of God, by, by imperatives that provide no alternatives, right? Eternal life or perishing. You see, we can't really understand John 3.16 if we don't understand its context. And the context of this love and this offer and this gift and what really makes this love really mean something is the depth of what's at stake and what it cost. Right? Consider the intensity of this love. Consider the, the ferocious nature of this love. He sent his son. This isn't apathetic love. Kind of disinterested This is a love that moves toward the beloved, a love that runs into conflict, that runs into danger for the beloved, for you. The urgency of his love demanded the reality of Christmas. The ferocity of his love necessitated necessitated the humiliation of the incarnation, right? He didn't count equality with God as something to be held on to, but he emptied himself and took on the nature of a servant, This is a ferocious love, but we do struggle to see how God can be loving and full of wrath, don't we? Because it, it goes beyond our comprehension. And, and really, I think what the more pressing question is when we consider the wrath of God is how could, how could he be loving and not care about justice? How could God be loving and stand on the sideline and kind of watch as we destroy ourselves? God's wrath might not look like what you think it looks like. It's, it's not crankiness or bad temper. So this brings us to our second point. What is, what is the nature of, of God's wrath? The nature of the wrath of God. Consider this example from Tim Keller. He says, suppose a man goes and, and robs a store. Think about how the, the store, like say it's a small kind of corner store. How would the store owner respond? 
It's personal, right? They might be angry. They might want, uh, they want some payback. They might want blood. They might lash out. But what, what about the state? How does the state respond in that situation? The police officers, the lawyers, the judge. It's not the same, is it? It's not, it's not as emotional. The judge in, in that case might even feel some level of compassion toward the, the criminal. Maybe there's some mitigating factors, but whatever the case, the state, even if they feel compassion, the, the state, the judge, the police, the lawyers, all of it, they are now in opposition to the person that broke the law. It's a judicial wrath. The man is now in opposition to the state. And the state is in opposition to the man, right? He can't, he can't vote or run for office. He's losing his freedom for, for a time. There's a settled opposition of the state toward him until the debt is paid. And when the Bible talks about the wrath of God, it talks about this settled opposition to evil. His opposition to the lawbreaker. Right? The wrath of God is his settled opposition to evil. We, we were all built by him. We were all created by him. And the Bible says we've all gone astray. We've broken his law. We, we've wanted to, to be our own masters. We've wanted to live our own lives. And that's wrong. It's evil. It's lawbreaking. And God is opposed to us until that debt is paid. It's not crankiness. The wrath of God arises out of a love of truth, a love of righteousness, of standards, of perfection, out of a love for his creation, and out of a love for his people. He can't just stand on the sidelines and watch it all go down. Ezekiel 18 talks about how God detests wickedness, but that doesn't stop him from crying out. Verse 10, he, he says, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? All through the scriptures, you see, you see this heart, a heart that that's, isn't giving sin a pass, isn't giving evil a pass, but is bent toward mercy, bent toward restoration. And you hear that heart in verse 17 and 18. Jesus says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. There's that heart. He sent him in order that the world might be saved through him. Then listen to verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. You see that, that heart. It's not just love and it's not just wrath. It's both. D.A. Carson again says, I get, he says, I get the impression from this verse that we must be careful not to overstress human sinfulness or damnability and so to turn uh, the good news into bad news. It is true that the ministry of the law convicting us of our sin is most often needed in order to make us ready for the ministry of the gospel which promises us the free forgiveness of our sins. But perhaps, he says, as with the Samaritan woman, the gospel is sometimes more powerful in wooing us from our sin than the law is in frightening us from it. This seems to be the force of our present text. Nevertheless, Jesus is warning Nicodemus throughout and warning everyone who listens. It would be unloving to be unwarning. But you see, our, our modern sensibilities, 
might say, like, we'll, we'll just take verse 16. Right? I mean, come on. What kind of loving God is angry or, or filled with wrath? It's a bit medieval. But you see, any, any loving person is often filled with anger and wrath sometimes. For good reasons. In her book, Hope Has Its Reasons, Becky Pippert writes, think, think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. She pushes this further and she talks about some uh, close friends who are destroying their, their lives through, through uh, addiction and, and drug abuse. She says, how did I feel? I was grieved and sickened to see the wasted potential, but I also felt fury. Everything in me wanted to shake them, to say, can't you see? Don't you know that what you're doing to yourself? You've become less and less yourself, yourself every time I see you. She says, I wasn't angry because I hated them. I was angry because I cared. If I hadn't loved them, I could have walked away, but love detests what destroys the beloved. Love detests what destroys the beloved. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. She continues, the fact is that anger and love are inseparably bound in human experience. She says, if I, a flawed and sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who made them? If God were not angry over how we are destroying ourselves, then he wouldn't be good and he certainly wouldn't be loving. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is, and hate, uh, or sorry, anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. And we see this so clearly later in the gospel. Jesus stands outside of Jerusalem, weeping over the city. Near the end of his ministry, he's, he's ministered to them, he's taught them, he's healed them. Light, has, light from God has come into their city and they've rejected him. Right? And his response is to weep over them. Luke 19, he drew near, near the city and saw the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. That's the heart of God toward Jerusalem, and that's the heart of God toward you. So we've seen some of the nature of the love of God, the nature of the wrath of God, and then we see our response, right? We're pushed in this text to respond. So we see, three, the nature of our response. And in our final three verses, there's really two alternative ways, the way of of judgment and the way of life. And that's really your only two options. Jesus says in verse 19, this is the judgment, or, or this is the verdict. Right? This is the answer to the question, how, how do I know if I've believed? Here's the verdict. How do you know if you've received? Here's the judgment. Verse 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. A sure sign of unbelief is that you prefer the darkness to the light. You prefer sin. You might not like the consequences of getting caught, 
the consequences it has on your relationship, but you prefer it. And you want to keep it hidden. Right? A person that loves the darkness, who rejects the light, is a person who might feel like or might be getting away with their sins, but they ultimately can't get away from their sins. Right? It's why Jesus says in verse 17, that person is condemned already. Right? They are living in condemnation, under the settled opposition of God. Right? And this is where our view of God really starts to matter. Right? You see, for the, person, for the person for whom God is only love, a God who, who never confines or restricts or challenges you, if that's your view of God, a God who only, only ever confirms you in what you're already doing, then how could he possibly shine light into your life? How could he possibly challenge you? How could he possibly call you to something deeper? You see, love that's only ever permissive isn't really love. A love that watches the thing they love walk themselves off a cliff isn't really loving. And for the person for whom God is only ever wrath, a God who, who never gives his approval to you, a God who, who resents you, who, who brings salvation, but it's kind of like, okay, salvation with a bit of a sigh. If that's your view of God, how could you ever come out of hiding? How could you ever come out of the darkness and into the light? How could you dare expose yourself to the light of his judgment and his holiness? How could you ever feel safe with him? You see, these, these two poles of legalism and license, both at their root, are fundamentally a distorted view of God, a distorted view of his love or of his, his wrath and his holiness, and a distorted view of what he accomplished on the cross. Because the cross is where God's love and his wrath meet. It's where love and justice meet. And if you fail to see that, you'll fail to ever really tap into what's on offer in the gospel, right? Because the cross is where you can see the love of God and the, and the justice of God on full display, not at odds with each other, but fueling each other. How can I come out of the darkness and into the light if, if my view of God is only that he's, he's going to beat me up? Or why would I ever come out of the darkness and into the light if my view of God is that he's, he doesn't care? But when I look at the cross, I can see how much he loves me. I see that he, he loves me enough not to let the cancer of sin ravage my soul for all of eternity. He loves you enough to give his life for your rescue. How much does he care about truth and righteousness and holiness? Enough to leave no sin unpunished. And that's what John is, is hinting at in chapter 1 when he said that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And in him we find both. It's not just, just one or the other. And so we have to respond. Either by staying in the dark or by coming to the light. Listen to verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So responding to this invitation is a stepping into the light. There's an order there. Uh, the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard put it like this. He said that the life of faith is infinite humiliation and grace and then a striving born of gratitude. 
The life of faith is infinite humiliation and grace and then a striving born of gratitude. This is Christianity. You see what he means? Infinite humiliation in, in the original sense, not like embarrassing, but like humbling, right? Faith involves a humbling, an awareness of my need, of my desperate condition, that I'm among the world that God so loved in spite of everything wrong and broken about me. And this awareness comes through grace, right? And this faith, this, this belief comes through grace and then a striving born out of gratitude. Whoever does what is true, Jesus said, obedience is a mark of saving faith in Christ. It's a sign of a new heart, a new desire. And it, it's an obedience born out of gratitude, out of, out of salvation, Right? It's, it's an obedience that looks at the cross, that, that looks at all he did for us, for me, that looks at his love and can't possibly want to walk back to the dark. Does it mean that, that you walk in perfect obedience? No. But it's an awareness of what, what Paul is so aware of in, in Philippians 3. He says, not that I've already obtained this perfection or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What fuels my, my obedience, my desire to, to be in the light and to stay in the light? I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You hear that? It's not license and it's not legalism. It's a view of, of sanctification, of, of our becoming more like Jesus that's progressive, that's, that's, that's not based on a messed up view of God or, or the gospel but rooted in the fact that a holy God demands obedience and that a loving God gives us the grace and power to strive toward that obedience. So much of of the Christian life is learning to understand that God's heart towards you as you learn to walk in the light is the heart of a father. Right? So many of us have this idea that God is in love with a, a future version of ourselves. Right? The version where we finally nailed it, we're finally reading our Bibles and getting up early and figured out our addiction to comfort, our, our selfishness, something like 10 years down the road. Right? The a version of yourself that is 10 years down the road has finally nailed it. That's the version of myself that God will actually be happy with. Listen, you can't, that's not in the scriptures. That's not the spirit. God loves you right now, December 5th, 2021, as much as he is ever going to love you. And, and that kind of love will empower you to move, to walk, to run in obedience. Right? The heart of God toward you as you take steps of obedience is the heart of a, a father. Right? Like our, our daughter, the one who did the crackers, um, our daughter Florence, she's the youngest, learned to walk way too young, like, like 10 months, maybe even, yeah, kind of. It looked unnatural. Right? When you learn to walk, there's all kinds of falling, and it's, it's, you know, it's a learning process. And what, what did I do as her dad when she was learning to walk? What do I do when she, she fell? Did I roll my eyes? Can't even walk. 
course not, right? Those, they take two steps, and you're like, yes! Right? We celebrate that. But listen, I, I, want, I want to push you a bit here. This isn't, this isn't license. Because I heard a phrase about a month ago that, that's stuck with me. Resonance isn't the same as obedience. Right? So we can resonate with something like that and go, yes, that's the heart of God toward me. And then go home and kind of on with my life. Right? It's not the same. Re- something resonating in your heart is not the same as taking a step of obedience to it. So hearing about the love of God leads us to obedience. And maybe the Spirit right now is moving in your heart and saying like, oh, there's a thing. There's a thing I need to do in response to this. I don't know what it is. Right? We have this temptation to be Sunday morning Christians. We worship, we sing, we nod along, we write a few notes, and then we move along. And so I wonder, I wonder what obedience looks like for you. I don't know. It could be this morning that you respond to this invitation for the very first time. And I pray that you would. It could be that you need to take steps of confession. Maybe you've been living in hiding. Maybe it's a reorientation or like kind of a refreshing of your understanding of God's heart towards you. Maybe it's, yeah, going back to John 3.16 and relearning the gospel. Maybe it's been a while. But whatever it is, just as, as I close here, know that his mercies towards you as you walk in obedience, his mercies are new every morning. Um, so just as I close, I wanted to leave, leave you with a picture. Um, when my wife and I lived in England, one of, the, one of my favorite things about the, the culture there is that they really held on to old ways of doing things even when they didn't make sense. Um, houses were old and kept up, which is really cool, but um, people still had their milk delivered to them in the morning, like a lot of people. So you'd walk down the streets and you'd see these glass jars of milk, which is kind of quaint, and, and, but kind of like doesn't make a ton of sense. Um, but it was cool. And every so often on a Saturday, we'd walk into town in the early afternoon sun shining, milk would still be sitting outside the doors. Um, likely because the owners were sleeping in, right? And the milk gets left out there and you gotta, gotta get rid of it. I wonder if that, that's a picture of maybe what's going on in some of our lives. Right? Are, are, are you missing out on the nourishment that God has for you? Uh, maybe there's like 50 gallons of milk sitting on your doorstep. You just got to open the door and, and receive what's there. Um, and I don't say that to somehow make you feel guilty. I say that because I don't want you and I don't want myself to miss out on what God has for us in this glorious truth of his gospel. So you pray with me as we, we close. Lord, I just pray that you would... Um, you would remind us of our, our need, remind us of your love for us. Um, God, that you'd um, keep us in the place of, of being amazed at, at your, just the depth of your love for us. Um, I pray that you'd not leave us where, where we are, but that you would make us more and more into your image, uh, more and more like you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.